Your company's future success demands agile, flexible, and resilient operations. I'm your host, Daphne Luchtenberg, and you're listening to McKinsey Talks Operations, a podcast where the world's C-suite leaders and McKinsey experts cut through the noise and uncover how to create a new operational reality. Making good use of data and analytics will not be done in any single bold move, but through multiple coordinated actions. Despite the recent and significant advances in machine intelligence, the full scale of the opportunity is just beginning to unfold. Earlier this year, McKinsey and MIT's Machine Intelligence for Manufacturing and Operations, MIMO, studied 100 companies in sectors from automotive to mining. To discuss this and more, I'm joined by the authors Vijay De Silva, Senior Partner at McKinsey & Company, and Bruce Lawler, Managing Director for MIT's MIMO. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Let's get started. Vijay, let's start with the why. What was the main driver behind the partnership and why did we commission the research? It's interesting. Over the last few years, we've had conversations with dozens and dozens of companies on the topic of automation and machine intelligence. And something came out of it. It was clear that we saw a a rising level of attention paid to the topic But at the same time, we saw many companies struggle while others succeeded. And it was really hard to tell why that was happening. We started by looking at the literature, and we saw a lot of what companies could do or a point of view of what they should be doing in this space. But we didn't really find a whole lot on what actually was working for the leaders and what wasn't working for the rest. And so we launched this research to try and address the question. What we really wanted to do was what what was a first-hand account across as many companies as we could find uh, to drive both success and struggle across a fairly large swathe of companies. And so based on the interviews and the surveys, we can now map out the journeys that companies should take or could take in accelerating progress in this space. What was particularly important was it could define success and failure in many cases in some industries. Thanks so much. Hey, and Bruce, a lot of people have had false starts, right? And we hear all about bots and machine learning based on data analytics. But where did you and the team see practical examples where they were really starting to add value? So we looked at over 100 companies in the study itself, and then we did deep dive interviews with quite a few of them. And what we saw was that there really is a 2 to 3x difference across every major operational indicator. And some example success stories came out. So at Wayfair, for example, uh, they use machine intelligence to optimize shipping and they reduced their logistics cost by seven and a half percent, which in a thin margin business is huge. A predictive maintenance company called Augury worked with Colgate Palmolive to uh, use predictive maintenance and they saved 192 million tubes of toothpaste, or they worked with Frito-Lay and they saved a million pounds of product. Another example is Vistra, an energy generation company. And they went and looked at their power plants and the overall efficiency and what they call the heat rate. And they were able to reduce energy consumption by about 1%, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you realize they generate enough energy for 20 million households. Or lastly, uh, Amgen uses visual inspection to look at filled syringes, and they were able to cut false rejects by 60%. 
That's amazing, right? So even while philosophically execs have bought into the idea of machine learning, if we get down to brass tacks, there are real examples of where it's been helpful in the context of efficiency and in operations. So there are quite a few different use cases where the leaders focus. And so those are in forecasting, uh, transportation, logistics, and uh, predictive maintenance, as I mentioned. But close behind those were quite a few others in terms of inventory optimization or process improvement, some early warning systems, cycle time reduction, or, or supply chain optimization. The bottom 50% did not have this type of focus. So I think a key takeaway from the study is the laser focus of the leaders on winning use cases. And secondly, uh, they took a multidimensional approach. So historically, people thought if I hired a data scientist, that would be enough. But there actually were nine different areas that are required to be a leader. But you don't have to do them all at once. So we'll give an example of, of Cooper Standard, which is uh, doing a very cutting edge, uh, real-time process control using machine learning. And to be successful, they needed really three big things, strategy, people and data. So strategy, they had to, from an entire company perspective, decide that this was important to them, that what they had today wasn't good enough, but there were other solutions. Uh, secondly, they had to upskill the people that they already had, typically control engineers that did not understand data science and data scientists that didn't understand control engineering. They're almost exact opposite fields. And also they gave people online access to data and they, they made it very they very much empowered their frontline people as well and on the topic of data they had too much of it it's it's a very complex process that they have and they had to actually come up with new methods of data pipelining they couldn't even use the cloud because uh, the data is moving so quickly they had to process it locally and the the uh, the process lines are running so quickly they had to make local real-time decisions that's really interesting bruce what other surprises did you and the team come across as you were completing the research i think one of the main things was the efficacy and the efficiency of the leader's ability to deploy at scale. So for example, Bayer, an international pharmaceutical company, was able to use their governance process to triage the most valuable applications. They would then go to one plant where they would perfect these applications. And once they'd achieved the results that they'd hoped, they would rapidly deploy them around the world to their facilities. They ended up being classified as what we call an executor in our study, even though their performance results were that of a leader. I had the same observation that Bruce had. And just to add to that, there were two things in particular that, that surprised me. One was we always expected the leaders to invest more heavily than the others because they were far more advanced and were spending more money. What was surprising was that the rate of increase in the investments, when we asked people to talk about the future investments, was for the leaders was much higher than the rest. And it was left, we were left with the feeling that not only was the gap large, but it was increasing. The second thing that surprised me, at least, was the fact that the leaders don't have to be large firms. And you didn't necessarily need deep pockets to become a leader. And we found plenty of examples of leaders that were smaller firms that were quite nimble 
but were able to pick their shots intelligently. And that was one theme that came through across many of the companies that we saw. The, the ability to focus their efforts on where it mattered made them leaders. Thanks, Vijay. And, and just to press on a little further there, you know, companies across industries in a wide range of sizes, from blue chip companies to greenfield sites, they're all trying to integrate analytics and data to improve their operations. However, the results have been mixed. So why do some companies do so much better than others? So it's an interesting question, Daphne. So we looked at nine different things, so nine different levers that companies could pull. And of the nine, five really stood out at us at re- as really making the difference. And they were the following. The first was governance, and I'll go into each one. Governance, deployment, partnering, people, and data. Go- governance really means to what degree th- is there a top-down push from senior management and also a purpose-driven approach to, to deploying the technology. So leading companies keep you know, have strong governance to keep their digital programs on track and to document how the portfolio is doing. And so Bayer's a pharmaceutical exa- a company that put a lot of effort to use AI in, in, in some of their plants across a number of use cases, and then having worked it out, applied across the network. And leading firms would actually do this quite rigorously and regularly. The second thing is, especially given the dearth of, of uh, talent in data science in the industry, leading firms are much more purposeful in terms of how they organized. So the poor performers would more likely to spread their resources thin across multiple teams or not have it at all. In contrast, reading, leading companies like McDonald's, as, as Bruce mentioned earlier, would be more likely to have a center of excellence where they would concentrate their resources. Uh, deployment is literally to what degree are use cases used and in what order. Leading companies had much more of it and were much more conscious about which ones mattered. And then as we took, took it into partnerships, partnerships were far more common across leading firms than, than the rest, which surprised us initially, but they were more reliant on, on either academia, startups, or ex- existing technology vendors or consultants, and used a wider range of partners than the rest. Uh, an example was the company Augury that Bruce mentioned before, used by both Colgate Parmalive and uh, PepsiCo Frito-Lay, and essentially using AI-driven systems and what's available out there in the market to to generate impact. Analog Devices was a semiconductor is a semiconductor firm that collaborated with MIT to use machine intelligence quality control to reduce to reduce production runs or defaults in production runs. And the last one is data, and specifically the democratization of data, where leaders not only put much more effort into making sure that data was accurate, and right, 92% had processes to make sure that the data was available and accurate, but also the fact that it was available to the front line. In, in contrast, over 50% of the leaders had data available to the front line versus only 4% of, of the rest. Thanks, Vijay. Very interesting. Um, Bruce, we've talked a bit about the four categories that the, that the research settled on. Can you talk through what those four categories and how you define them? So the leaders really captured the largest gains and had the, the largest deployments. And so as a result, they have the most infrastructure and the most capabilities. And then there was the middle ground, uh, what we call the planners and the executors. So the planners have really good maturity on the enablers. They've invested in people, data infrastructure, data scientists, and their their governance processes, but they haven't yet proceeded far enough along their journey to get the same results as the leaders. And then finally, we come to the executors. 
And the executors were hyper-focused on very simply getting solid gains and, and typically broadly deployed as the buyer example I gave earlier. And just to give you an idea of the differences, if I compare the leading to the emerging, for example, uh, leaders had about a 9% average KPI improvement versus the emerging companies were at 2%. Leaders had a payback period of a little over a year, where emerging companies were at two years, so double. And you know, just in terms of deployment, leaders were doing 18 different use cases where the emerging companies were six on average. How can companies get started on their digital journey? What do they do first? We found a lot of where companies shouldn't start. So, so, uh, but there was one one thing that we really learned from talking to the leaders, which is start with what matters to you. Okay, there was plenty of evidence of companies starting on certain certain use cases and others rep, trying to replicate the, that experience which tended to fail unless it was a problem that really mattered to them. And so the context of each company and their strategy, we realized was extremely important. So the first thing was start with a use case that really matters. The second thing is around making sure that the data is available. And we've talked to this, the course of this effort and this podcast about how data is important. Uh, leaders take data extremely seriously, very often baking it into the early parts of their processes. And so it's making sure that the accuracy of the data is, is right and the availability of data is, is right. Third, very much, and this, this has changed from a few years ago, finding a vendor with a pro- proven solution is often you know, one of the fastest things that companies could do. And there isn't a need to reinvent the wheel. And the vendor landscape has simply exploded over the last few years. And there's plenty of help out there. So, so that's number three. And fourth is really driving to an early win. Momentum is extremely important here. And leaders realize the value of having a strong momentum here to keep, keep the engine running. And so we really starting with an early win to build up the momentum to gradually become more sophisticated over time. Thanks, Vijay. Um, and Bruce, we talked earlier about the importance of kind of engaging with a broader ecosystem and that from that comes increased momentum. What did you see the leaders do in this area that was really interesting? This was another surprising finding. The, uh, the leaders actually do work a lot with partners, even though they've spent excessively on their internal infrastructure. That's to help them pick the best partners. And some of these partners are actually risky with longer timelines. So, for example, uh, leaders tend to partner with startups, which is typically a little more risky, or they partner with academia, uh, which leads to longer timelines. I'll give you an example. Uh, Analog Devices worked with MIT on one of their ion implantation processes. That's part of the semiconductor manufacturing process. And it was important to them to really get this right because the way semiconductors are made you lay down one layer and it could be months before you finish the entire chip and you can test it so you know it it was worth taking the risk to determine if a process months earlier it actually ruined a product that that you then spend more time and money on fascinating and actually, I suppose it's a little bit counterintuitive as we've been talking about bots and machine learning. But Vijay, both you and Bruce have talked about the importance of the people component. Why is that? Did it turn out to be such an important indicator? 
I cannot overemphasize how important this this one factor turned out to be and the importance of people. And I know it sounds trite, but actually, as we dug in through what different companies are doing, um, it was eye-opening in terms of what was happening on the people front and in two two ways, really. One is in terms of building skills, and we talked about centers of excellence, to what degree leaders are building skills to to power some of some of these efforts and the leaders had thought about roles that the others hadn't even got to so for instance things like machine learning engineers versus simply data scientists and data data engineers and there were four or five different categories of people that the leaders were were building into the process uh thinking ahead three or four steps ahead so that that was number one the second thing is that th- there was greater emphasis on training uh their frontline empo- employees uh, we saw this, you know, uh, we mentioned McDonald's before, where even though there was a core within McDonald's that was developing uh, applications for forecasting footfall, for instance, there was a greater degree of emphasis on training the frontline staff to be able to get the most out of it. And that was a theme that we saw across multiple companies. And then the third one is around access to data. The leaders were much more willing to give access to data to the frontline and across the board, across the comp- in, in, a, in a particular firm, versus the rest of the companies will sometimes would tend to be much more guarded around how they use data. And so that, that was the third thing in terms of pr- providing frontline employees and employees in general with the resources and the data that they needed to succeed. Bruce, um, a lot of our audience um, who follow McKinsey Talks operations will be thinking about, um, you know, their own careers, their own personal development plans. How should they be thinking about building their own skills in this realm? This industry is moving so quickly and you cannot keep up with it. And it's really a large and complex field. So no one person can know everything. And so what we found was successful was a team approach. So I think uh, learning who your trusted partners can be, you know, whether they're vendors or even sometimes your customers, startups, academia, or uh, clearly your new employees, uh, that's going to be what's important. And you really need to uh, get outside points of view, even if you're digital native, it's, it's, a, it's a diverse space. So uh, rely on your partners. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. That's great. Vijay, we're coming to the end of our program, and we must thank you and Bruce and the team for pulling this really interesting research piece together and giving us kind of a roadmap. Can you just give us a sense, regardless of what category an an organization might feel they're in, a leader, a planner, an, an executor, or an emerging company, how should they be moving ahead? How should they be focusing on the next step? There were four things we identified in the work that we did. The first one was having some sense of a North Star. You know, there was always the risk that companies would, would bounce from one pilot to another pilot to a third. And so the question is, having a, set, a clear-eyed view of what the end game is, the North Star or the goal or whatever you call it, was, was extremely important because that would guide a lot of future effort. The second thing was we were struck by, across many companies we talked to, there wasn't enough clarity about where they stood versus their peers. And and one thing we felt was fairly important was to just get take an honest self-assessment in terms of where they stood compared to state of the art today or state of practice. The third one was having some sense of what a transition plan would be. So, for instance, 
like Bruce outlined, there are many paths to becoming a leader, whether you go through an executor first or planner. And having some sense of how to get there was important. Now, we, we recognize that the industry is changing so fast that the, that plan might change. But it was important to have a point of view so that companies wouldn't spread their investment dollars too thinly. And then the last one was the importance of having use cases, a handful of use cases that matter to them. And starting with those and building up momentum from that, but having a, a clear sense of what those those use cases are and making sure that the momentum and impact from that was important. Brilliant. Thanks, Vijay. Um, and Bruce, we pride ourselves on this um, this McKinsey Talks operation series that we always get pragmatic, right? And um, it's not theoretical, but it's about what can we do next? So if I were to ask you, what's the one thing that our listeners should know, should read and should learn how would you how would you guide them? I think on what you should know is what types of problems make good machine learning problems. So, for example, if it's a very high volume problem with a large number of transactions or large number of products, or if it's a high rate, so short cycle times or short decision times, if it's high complexity where there's many interactions of, of different systems coming together, or it's a, a highly sensitive process that requires very tight controls. And as far as what you should read, uh, any article that really describes how others have successfully used machine learning, uh, that'll give you ideas on what problems to solve. So focus on the what, not the how. You want to be successful quickly, so learn from other examples and and as Vijay said, pick ones that are important to you and then uh, duplicate the methodology. And then lastly, uh, what you should learn uh, is what type of problem are you trying to solve and what types of problems are solvable by machine learning? So, for example, is it a classification problem? Am I trying to classify dogs or cats? Um, is it a clustering problem where I'm trying to take groups of things and group them together very much like we did uh, in this study? Prediction, am I trying to predict if something will fail in the field in the future, even if it's working just fine now? Or an anomaly detection, is something really different than something else? And Bruce, can you say a bit more about the companies that participated? Absolutely. So a little over half uh, had 10,000 or more employees. So they are a little bit on the larger size, but 45% actually were under 10,000. And to break that down a little bit, 12 of them had just 50 to 199 employees. So they were uh, quite small. And as far as range of industries, uh, we covered everything from oil and gas to retail to healthcare and pharma, aerospace, automotive, so 17 total categories of industry. And Vijay, now that um, this research chapter has come to an end, what are the next steps and what can our listeners look out for? Look, we've, we've published this on both the McKinsey and MIT websites, and we're, we're very excited about that. Uh, we'd love you know, comments, and there's been a fair bit of debate that this has generated, that, which has been fantastic. And then in parallel, what we're doing is we're going back to each of the companies that participated with our results, which includes where they stand versus the others in the sample and what that might mean for them. And it's a different story for each one. So that, that's that's going on as we speak. You know, as this proceeds, uh, our hope is that over time we expand this to a greater and greater share 
of the industry, both in terms of manufacturing and operations more broadly. As Bruce mentioned before, we've got 17 industries covered in this in this in this uh, study, and over time we'd expect that to deepen as we get more and more companies in each of the industries. Uh, suspecting that the story, the implication will be quite different by industry and by company, depending on the size they are, the maturity th- that they're at, um, and, and, and where they hope to get to. And if BJ, if I could just add that we are creating these individual playbooks for each of the companies so they can see exactly where they are on their journey and what are the immediate next steps that they should be doing on their path toward being a leader or certainly getting better uh, KPI performance and, and faster paybacks. Got it. Bruce, thank you so much for sharing these insights. Vijay, thank you um, very much for being part of this conversation. You know, I, I summarize it as, you know, that it's within reach. Some of these, some of these efficiency gains and operational gains are definitely within reach. And those companies that haven't yet made the first move, they should do so forthwith. Would you agree, Vijay, Bruce? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And um, we look forward to being back with you all soon for our next program of McKinsey Talks Operations. You've been listening to McKinsey Talks Operations with me, Daphne Luchtenberg. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back with a brand new episode in a couple of weeks.